right, well, let's go ahead and turn to, to John chapter 12, please. If you'd like a title for this morning's message, I've called it The Hour Arrives. The Hour Arrives. And let's read from verse 12 through to the end of verse 36. It is entitled above this verse, The Triumphal Entry. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethesda in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honour him. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. So, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thunders. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Let's pray. Well, Lord, as we come once again to your preached word, our Father, this is a most sacred moment. Not my words, but your words. 
And Lord, as we examine your words in Scripture, Lord, would they shine like a light in our hearts? Would you ignite them in our hearts that we may come alive to behold afresh your Son? Holy Spirit, have your way amongst us. In Jesus' name, amen. And if all of us in the room, at various times, the, the hour arrives in our lives, doesn't it? We go through things when we're aware the hour then has arrived. And so we go to the hospital for a test, and it takes a while for them to come through, but then you get the call that, well, the test results are in. And as you make your way down there, you're aware, oh, the hour's arrived. I'm going to find out what is taking place in my body. Or you get a letter from the Department of Immigration. On a, you're waiting for a visa. And as you look and you open the post box, you're aware, Department of Immigration, and you're aware, the hour has arrived. I'm about to find out in some ways my destiny, what's going to take place for the remainder of my life. And maybe for some of you ladies, you await the arrival of the baby. You're thrilled to find out you're pregnant. And then as you get bigger, the moment you realize is this thing has got to come out. The pain start, you're aware, yep, the hour has arrived. Or you're awaiting the death of a loved one. And you know it's coming because you've all been called together as a family. But you're aware now the hour has arrived. They're about to go. Or maybe it's just exam day. You've been training for years and it all comes down to this one final exam and you're aware the hour Arrives. We all have moments in our lives where we understand what it is to have the hour arriving. And yet in all of our lives, there has never been an hour arrive like this one. There's never been an hour arrive in the Savior's life like this hour. See, as we arrive at verse 12, we now arrive on Sunday morning in the story. The night before, the Saturday night, has been an incredible night. Jesus has been anointed. You have this wonderful scene of the party hosted by Simon the leper. Everybody's having a good time. The disciples are there. Martha's there catering. Simon the leper's there. Everybody's having a great time. And then Mary comes in and anoints Jesus with this ointment as an act of extravagant devotion before him, as an act of extravagant devotion for him and anointing him both for his burial but also in a prophetic sense of his kingship. The night before then has been a great night for Jesus, but it's now Sunday morning. And the crowd is beginning to gather once again around Jesus' bedroom. Jesus can do nothing in private anymore. Ever since healing Lazarus and having Lazarus raised from the dead, everybody started to believe that this is the guy, this is the Messiah, that this is a special one. So there are crowds all the time. So before Jesus even gets out of bed, there are crowds outside of his window starting to form. And as Jesus then arises that Monday, that that Sunday morning, he arises with a heavy heart because he's aware that this is the week. The hour has arrived. Is my microphone going crazy? This is the microphone that is fixed.
Hello. Okay. Yeah, he's aware as he gets out of bed that the hour has finally arrived and that this is the week, that this is the week in particular in his life that he's going to die. But this is the Sunday before the Friday that he would be hanging on a cross. This is the week that he has been dreading since he arrived. Folks, I want to encourage you this morning, as we walk alongside the disciples and alongside the crowds, we have the privilege then, the distinct privilege in our lives to walk from Bethany to Jerusalem with Jesus. And here's my hopes. My hopes is that if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you're here today as an unbeliever, then firstly, thanks for coming. But my hope is that as we walk with Jesus today, that you may be dazzled and that you may see that he really is the King of kings and Lord of lords. That's why this book is written. The Gospel of John is written so that you may believe and see that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Well, I pray that as we take this walk with him, this final walk with him, that you would see that he really is who he said he is. If though you do know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then my hope is that as we take this walk with Jesus today, that we would realize afresh what a Savior and King we really have. Because he's amazing. And as you begin to walk with him slowly, watching him and talking to him and allowing him to communicate to you, you realize he's more incredible than I ever thought. He really is an incredible Savior, an incredible King. So I have four clear points today. Number one, the King's presentation. Number two, the king's proclamation. Number three, the king's pain. And then number four, the king's point. So let's start where he starts. Number one, the king's presentation. You see, Jesus awakes then in Bethany. Picture the scene, and you've got to imagine the scene. He awakes in Bethany. The crowd is all around him. He awakes with a heavy heart because he knows the hour has come. This is the week that he is going to die This is the week where he will die for the sins of the world. And so he arises that day and he realizes in the sovereignty of God that this is the day when he needs to make the walk to Jerusalem for the final time. Now, please note that when he arrives at Jerusalem, this is Passover week. This is not any normal week in the history of Jerusalem. This is Passover week. So you'd have over a quarter of a million people crowding around Jerusalem, which is not particularly a big place. But they're all there for the Passover. And so there are literally hundreds of thousands of people in and around Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And as he arises in Bethany this morning, he's aware, this is the day that I've got to go there. And this is what happens. Look at verse 12 again. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. So a great crowd has come from Bethany, okay? Everybody in Bethany knows who Jesus is. They've seen him heal Lazarus and raise Lazarus from the dead. So they're following Jesus around everywhere. So as Jesus begins to make the walk from Bethany to Jerusalem, there are hundreds of people going with him. And when they arrive at Jerusalem, there are hundreds of thousands of people waiting there for him too. 
And as a tide then comes together, knowing that Jesus, in their opinion, really is the Messiah, knowing that he is the king of Israel, and believing that he is the one, listen, that would liberate them from the bondage of the Romans, which is what they believed at this point, they start to cry out, Hosanna, Hosanna. That literally translates, save us. So they're crying out in their thousands, oh, this is him, the Messiah, the King of Israel, the one who's going to release us from the bondage of the Romans. Save us. Hosanna. You're the King of Israel. You're him. You're the one we've been waiting for. And they begin to put palm branches all out on the floor to celebrate his arrival. Now, that's a symbol of incredible worth. You see, in 142 BC, the Maccabees, a tribe of people led by Simon and Maccabeus had already liberated Jerusalem from the Greeks. So 142 years before this moment, Simon and Maccabeus had, on behalf of his group, already liberated Jerusalem. At that point, they were overtaken by the Greeks. And he comes riding in. He liberates them. And what they do to celebrate that they have been released from the Greeks is they put on a whole procession for Simon and Maccabeus. And they do exactly the same thing. They seek to hail him. They seek to sing his praises and they put down palm branches in front of him. And from that point on then in Jewish history, the palm branches meant victory and kingship. It became like a national flag to them. So what we are seeing taking place as Jesus arrives in Jerusalem is incredible nationalistic fervor. They are excited about their nation. They're excited about what they think this is going to mean. Jesus, in their opinion, is going to come in and release them from the bondage of the Romans. This is going to be happy days. So, Hosanna! Hail the King of Israel! And they start putting the branches out to celebrate his great arrival. You see, in one sense, they are so right. But grievingly, at the same time, they are so wrong, aren't they? Yes, this is the Messiah. Yes, this is the true King of Israel. But release them from the bondage of the Romans and take arms and drive them out? No, he's come from far more than that. He's come to release them from a different type of bondage. He's come to defeat a far greater enemy. And he's come not only for them, he's come for the whole world. And so what he does is then begins to correct them, both through speech and through actions, as to how you've got it so right and yet so wrong. And so at verse 14, we see him looking around for a donkey, and having found a donkey, he then rides a donkey in for the entrance, riding over all the palm branches with hail, hail the king in the background still taking place. Jesus, in a bizarre moment, gets on a donkey and then rides it in. Now, for everybody present there at this moment, they would have been scratching their heads, wondering, what is he doing? Because, you see, a donkey is indeed a royal animal, but it's symbolic of peace. When Simon Maccabeus rode in in 142 BC, he rode in on a great white stallion because that, symbolically, is is the animal of war. And so they think, yes, this is the type of king we want. This is somebody who is going to beat the Romans for us. But Jesus, deliberately then to show them, no, I've not come to win war, I've come in peace, he gets on a donkey. And begins to ride then in on a donkey, an animal of peace. In doing so, he fulfilled a prophecy in Zechariah 9, verses 9 through 10, 
hundreds of years before the arrival of Jesus, he writes, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And in this moment, arriving at the gates of Jerusalem, he's here. Not the prince of war, but the prince of peace. One who's come on the back of a donkey. And one whose rule will really go from the rivers to the ends of the earth. And one who really will one day rule all the nations as a prince of peace. Well, the Jewish people are amazed by this. They can't believe what's going on. This is such a shock to them because this is, as far as they're concerned, the Messiah, the one that they've been waiting for that will overturn the Romans. And so as soon as Jesus comes in on the donkey, they begin to chase after him to find out what's going on. What is taking place? We just don't get this. And so they begin to pursue Jesus and their pursuit is led by some Greeks. This is what happens in verse 20. It says, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethesda in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. So picture the scene. He's just come in on a donkey. They're in disbelief as what has taken place. And so they're all chasing after him as a crowd to find out, what's going on? We, we thought you were the king, the Messiah, the one that was going to come. And their line is led by the Greeks. Most lines are always led by the Greeks because the Greeks always want to know what is truth. They'll find truth in anything. So they just go around any, any religion to try and find what is true. So it's no surprise that they're the front of the queue to find out, well, hey, how does this work then? This is pretty cool. So they're all chasing after Jesus in this moment. And then comes number two, my second point, the king's proclamation. You see, there is no doubt that there would be a hush of expectancy on the crowd at this point. There is no doubt that every eye would be on the Savior and every ear would be pointed in his direction because they want to know exactly what he is about to say. And this is what he says. Verse 23 And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. They don't know what's coming after yet. So here's what would have taken place in the crowd at that point. They would have been very, very excited again. They're thinking, this is so cool. We don't get the donkey thing. That just seemed really weird. But the hour has come for him to be glorified. Every Jew in the room would be thinking, you know what, this is incredible stuff. This is the moment when surely he's going to call us to arms. This is the king. The hour has come for him to be glorified, to be magnified. We're ready, king. We're ready. Lead us in arms against the Romans. All of them would have been thinking about Daniel at this point and the great prophecy of one who is going to come and rule the nations. They're thinking, this is it. (laughs) Yes, just say the word, Savior, and we are ready for action. And then he continues, a continuation that they would have no doubt been very disappointed about. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So 
Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. (laughs) Could you imagine somebody actually standing with thousands of people around them saying that? They want to take him as king. And they really don't understand at that moment the intricacies of his illustration. But they do understand the headline. The headline is clear. You're going to die. We thought you were the king that was going to lead us against the Romans. But you've come as a king who's going to die. And they are in utter disbelief. There is no longer a hush of expectancy over the congregation There is a hush of disappointment to everybody who is present. And yet, folks, we need to understand what Jesus is saying there. Because as far as Jesus is concerned, yes, the hour has indeed come. The hour has arrived that I will be glorified and magnified and reveal to the whole world who I really am. For the hour has come where I will indeed need to fall to the ground like a grain of wheat. See, the whole point of a grain of wheat is what takes place is the grain of wheat falls from the top of the kernel and it dies, goes into the ground and it dies. And as it dies, the case around it erodes and then from within, new birth is brought. And if you leave the process going on, fields will be sown that way. And Jesus is saying, so it is with me. The hour has come that I will need to die, but in my death, There will be resurrection, and through me many seeds will come. Many fields will be planted through my death and through my resurrection. The hour uh, that all of the whole of redempted history throughout the whole of Scripture has indeed arrived. Adam and Eve in the garden, they eat the forbidden fruit. What does God do? He kills an animal and then clothes them to cover their shame. Why kill the animal? Because it was always designed to point forward to an hour that was coming. An hour that Jesus knows has now come. He then, God drives Adam and Eve out of the garden, doesn't he? And he drives them out of the garden because he says, you know what? If you remain here, you may touch the tree of life. And in touching the tree of life, you may be healed. But then he drives them from the garden. And you think, I wonder why. I'll tell you I wonder why. Because it's not the time for the tree of life to come yet. Because the tree of life was all about the cross. It was all about Calvary. And it was not the time for Jesus to come. The tree of life always pointed to the cross. The cross which the hour has now come for. Abraham and Isaac. Abraham stands over his son with a dagger. And is about to kill his son. And an angel of the Lord cries out, no. And a ram is provided for his son to take place as a substitute for his son. And Abraham says, you know what? In that moment, I saw the day of the Lord and I knew. For that day pointed forward to an hour to come where Jesus would be the perfect sacrifice in his place. And that hour has now come. Moses and the Passover lamb releasing all the people from the Exodus, finding a sinless, spotless lamb and killing the lamb and then putting the blood around the doorposts and so that the angel of death, as it passes over, it sees the blood of another has paid for the contents of that family home. Well, that hour has now come. Rahab, as she sits as the prostitute of Jericho in the walls of Jericho, And the trumpets go on and the walls begin to come down and she relies on a scarlet cord, a scarlet cord which pointed to the Passover that the Jewish army were having just in the field beyond them. A 
Passover that always pointed to this hour. And the hour has come. And Jesus knows it. And so his heart is heavy. Because the hour has come. You know, you would expect and hope, would you not, that at this point the crowds would not dim their praise of Hosanna and would not dim their praise of, behold, the King of Israel, but it would merely heighten. You would expect that the crowd at this point would hit their knees in adoration before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, that they would cry out to him in wonder and in praise, but they don't. In fact, no one does. The disciples, well, sadly, they just don't get it. And we know they don't get it. Because what we see in Mark is on the way, they're all arguing over who's going to sit at his right and left when he comes into his kingdom. They think he's going to overturn the Romans too. And in verse 16, they tell us straight up, you know what? It wasn't until after he died and rose again. It's that's when we realized. Till then, we just didn't get it. The Pharisees don't get it. They hate him. They just think, you know what? Told you, all these people trying to follow him, this is ridiculous. What a waste of time. And the crowd, they don't understand. Because as the rest of the chapter goes on and as this scene settles, they reject him. And John tells us, you know what, even then, they still didn't believe. They didn't understand. What do you mean you're going to die? What have you come for? We just don't get this. And instead of hailing him as king, they begin to one by one just reject him and move away from him because they simply just don't understand. But before the crowd move away from the Savior's address, see, note this is the last of the Savior's public addresses. After this point in all four Gospels, we just see Jesus spending time with his disciples. We don't see him addressing crowds anymore. But before he is finished with this crowd, he says something that I'm eager that we don't miss. He says something that I think we need to linger on and understand. He says something that we must not quickly move on from. Because before the crowd are dismissed on this day, before they begin to leave the Savior, he reveals to them the effect that this hour arriving has on him. Now, folks, as we look back, knowing that he's our Savior and King, we must note these words. Look at verse 27. This is my third point, the King's pain. Here's what he says. Now is my soul troubled. Now. Is my soul troubled? As he stands talking to the crowds this day and communicating his love for them and his mission and what he's come for, as they begin to one by one start to move away from him this day, he nonetheless wants to communicate to them how he feels about this moment. And this is indeed how he feels. And we need not miss it. And we must not move on from it. Because if you have ever wondered what it meant to thee, the Holy One, to bear away my sin, 
If you want to feel as a Christian what it really is to be so amazed with Jesus that you, like Mary, may break ointment out and perfume and want to anoint the Savior with it, you must understand how he feels. Because that invokes emotion in you. You want to know what it meant to thee, the Holy One, to bear away my sin? This is what it meant five days before he even got to the cross for you. He says, now is my soul troubled? Knowing what was to come, knowing what was to take place, his soul is in turmoil. His heart is in anguish. Kent Hughes says this. He says, Jesus' anticipation of the coming dread suddenly overwhelmed his emotions, tossing them into painful anguish. We can at least, at some, to some degree, relate to this reaction. Sometimes we all unwittingly remember something that we are not looking forward to and our stomachs turn and our palms get clammy. And yet to find a similar response in our Lord, even though it be in contemplation of the cross, is perhaps surprising in light of who he is. For he is the one who holds the world together. He is the one who healed the leper with a touch, who with a word cast out demons and calmed the seas. And he is the one who walked right through the crowds intent on his murder. Some say the reason our Lord was troubled was that he was contemplating the physical horror of the cross. The cloud of flies buzzing over the cross. His flayed back and evenly pressed against the stake. The nails through the nerves of his hands. The agony of constantly pulling himself up to get a breath. But if that is what we think the Lord was fearing, we do him a gross injustice. No, Jesus said, now my soul is troubled because in a few hours he would bear the world's sins and suffer separation from his father. That is what threw his soul into turmoil. The soul of the very God who holds the universe together was in turmoil because he would bear away our sin for us. His soul, which had never been tainted with sin, would in an instant have the sins of the universe poured into it. For he was about to endure the wrath of God as he paid for our sins, becoming a curse for us. And his soul then was indeed troubled. Folks, the Savior in this moment is not contemplating the physical pain associated with the cross. Terrible though that would be, that is not what his soul is gripped by. No, in this moment... He is contemplating divine abandonment. At this moment, he is aware that a horror awaits him in just five days' time. For the God who he has dwelt in perfect harmony with through all eternity, the Father who he has lived wholly for his entire life, the Father who has walked each and every day of the earthly mission with him, would soon be turning his face away from him. And pouring his righteous wrath on him. Jesus is anticipating the moment where he will cry out to God. My God. My God. Why have you forsaken me? He's aware that this moment is to come. And for a moment he can see just how horrendous this is going to be. And as he looks out on the crowd. As he realizes he will never leave the walls of Jerusalem again. This side of death. His soul is troubled. He's overwhelmed. 
we see this soul trouble repeating itself just four days later, albeit more intensely in the Garden of Gethsemane. Just four days on, the same takes place as he contemplates what he is about to carry on the cross in our place. It says that he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane and he literally collapses. His soul is so overwhelmed in anguish, so overwhelmed with trouble about what he is about to endure in our place that he collapses on the floor. He falls to the ground and he cries out to God, Lord, if there is any other way, This is the one that heals a leper. This is the one who can raise people from the dead in a moment. William Lane, in his wonderful commentary of Mark, writing about the scene of Gethsemane, says, Jesus came to be with the Father for an interlude before his betrayal. But he found hell rather than heaven open up before him. And he staggered. As he enters the garden, he, he cries out to the Father, is there any other way? And what he was met with was silence because there was no other way. And so he found hell rather than heaven just the evening before he was about to die at Calvary and have the Father turn his face away from him. Folks, don't miss this and don't look away. What did it mean to thee, the Holy One, to bear away your sin? In this moment, it meant trouble of soul. It meant a soul that was gripped with anguish as he realized in just five days' time, I will be hanging on a cross and I will endure relational abandonment. And he's overwhelmed. He is overwhelmed And yet that backdrop that we see there in that verse, that backdrop of the king's pain, is what I think makes his final point so incredible. Here's number four, the king's point. You see, there is a reason why Jesus, even in the midst of great pain, is so willing and committed to still go through with it. There's a reason beyond himself that even though his soul is deeply troubled that he still wants to stay and that he still wants to go through with it even though he is starting to see how horrific that will be folks in all honesty it's a reason incredibly and overwhelmingly that involves every individual in this room the reason why he remained in that moment even though his soul was troubled Involves every face here. Let's look at verse 27. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? He's asking a question. And he gives an answer. Father, save me from this hour. It's a statement and another question. What do you want me to say? As he looks out at the crowd, he's saying, listen, I'm in a desperate state here. My soul is deeply troubled. But what am I to say? Father, save me. You know what? As a crowd, we should have been responding in that moment. Yeah. Because that would be fair. Because you've done nothing wrong. You've never sinned. You've never broken the law. 
The Father could save you in a moment. Angels in their myriads could come down from heaven in an absolute moment and save you and take you to the Father. That's where you belong. That's what you deserve. But aren't you glad he didn't respond? Yes. For what am I to say? Father, save me from this hour? No. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. For this purpose. So Father, glorify your name. Folks, don't miss this. Don't miss your face in the crowd. Even in such pain at this moment, even in such anguish in this moment, with the Savior's soul in deep distress and trouble, he remains there looking at the crowd because he's aware there is not only this crowd, but there are crowds for hundreds and hundreds of years behind them. It is your face that he sees in this moment. And so he is aware even my my soul is in deep anguish. What am I to say? Father, save me? I cannot. And I can't because of you. Because I love you. Because I love this crowd. And I want to see him saved. So Father, glorify your name. Father, the cross that I am dreading. Father, Father, bring the cross to me. Father, you, the one who sent his only begotten son because he loved the world. Father, glorify your name now. Father, I am, I am ready. My, my soul is troubled, but Lord, I am ready. And the hour has arrived. The hour of destiny has come. And Father, I will go through with it. Because although my soul is in deep anguish, I love you. And I want your name to be glorified. And Father, I love them. So Father, you who sent your only begotten Son, so that all who believe in him shall not perish but have life. Father, glorify your name now because the hour has arrived. Folks, he stood there and stayed there for you. Joshua Harris writes, The world takes us to a silver screen on which flickering images of passion and romance play. And as we watch, the world says, This is love. But God takes us to the foot of a tree on which a naked and bloody man hangs. And says, no, this is love. And it is. His soul was troubled on numerous occasions. And yet he still arrived at Calvary because of love. Because he loves you. Folks, if you're here today and you do not know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you're a non-Christian, I want to encourage you. Before you go home today, put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Know him personally as your Lord and your King. Believe in him with all your heart and you will know then the glorious salvation that he came to bring. It is a salvation that you will never earn because you will never earn enough. It's a salvation you weren't designed to earn. It's a salvation that you have in and of itself blown it in. It's a gift. That's why he came at Christmas 2,000 years ago to be born as a gift. You just have to receive it by putting your faith in him as your Lord and Savior, receiving him as your King and your Savior, and in a moment you will be saved. You may think, but Dave, you don't know me. 
That's true, I don't. But you know what? All the way through the Bible, people that get saved are murderers, are prostitutes, are thieves. If you number among them, then welcome to the crowd. They still got saved. They took Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. In a moment, their lives were turned around. They started to live for something new and they knew the peace of God in their lives, knowing that they're forgiven of their sin, that they're reconciled to God, that heaven is their home, not because of their actions, but because of the finished work of Jesus Christ in their place. So folks, choose life. Today I set before you life and death. Choose life. If though you are a Christian here today, which is the majority of you, I just want to close by simply saying this. Listen. Whatever the hour in your life, never lose sight of your king. Whatever the hour, whatever you go through, never lose sight of your king. Walk with him daily in your lives. Walk with him in the word. Walk with him in song. Walk with him in prayer. Whatever it takes for you to stick next to him, do it. Because when you walk with him, I think it changes everything. Because when you walk with him then, whatever the hour, you know his care for you. Because whatever the hour, you're aware that this is the maker of heaven and earth that walks along beside me and hems me in both behind and before and who will never let me go. Whatever the hour, when we walk with him, we know then his commitment to us. Because even when our hearts are prone to wonder, we realize in reality he wonders with us. He holds us like a good shepherd of a lost sheep. He holds us and he comes after us and rescues us time and time again, bringing us back on the path. And when we walk with him day in and day out of our lives, we know deeply and experientially his love for us. Because when you walk with Jesus, you always see Calvary behind him. You're always aware how Can I question his love for me when behind him stands an old, rugged cross? Why was he there? For me. The reason why sometimes I don't feel affection for him is because I don't walk with him. But when I walk with him, I see Calvary again. And that changes everything. Folks, I want to encourage you then, whatever the hour in your life, never lose sight of the king. Never lose sight of him. And that's when you'll see what a savior and what a king we truly have. Let's pray. Why don't we stand together? Well, Lord, isn't this the truth? What a Savior and what a King we truly have. Lord, as you entered into Jerusalem that day, they were right. Save us. You are the King of Israel. And yet, Lord, they were so wrong. Because they hadn't understood that what they ultimately needed saving from was their sin and not the Romans. Lord, 2,000 years on, with the privilege of hindsight, Lord, thank you that you've opened our eyes so that we may behold truly what you've done for us.
Lord, as your disciples, would we recognize what it is to walk with you? As your disciples, would we recognize the joys of walking closely with the King of kings and Lord of lords? Lord, would we never lose sight of Calvary? For you are worthy of our praise. Amen.